Welcome to Body Sculpt of New York, Six Weeks to Fitness Podcast, where we hope to inform, motivate, encourage, and inspire you towards living a healthier lifestyle. And now, here's your host, the president of Body Sculpt of New York, Vince Ferguson. Hi, welcome to episode 164 of my Six Weeks to Fitness Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I had a fascinating interview with Dr. Francois Sadim a neuroscientist and assistant professor at the College of Staten Island, Helene Foods School of Nursing at Wagner College. During the interview, Dr. Sadim will discuss her autism research, the importance of mentorship, her latest findings on the benefits of a supplement called terrine, and her research on the dangers of heating food in the microwaves as it makes plastics unstable and their components that leach into our food that could have an effect on our brains. Most importantly, to pregnant mothers, unborn children. Listen to what she has to say about this organic compound. According to our research is that DDT is used as uh, a solvent as well, and uh, it basically helps to make makeup, especially for um, young women, right? Because young women are using a lot of makeup in their, in their young age-bearing, child-bearing years. So they use makeup and as a result, if there's DDP in it, it has a potential to cross the skin, cross the placenta, and then target an unborn baby. Dr. Francois Sadim is a neuroscientist and assistant professor at the College of Staten Island, Helene Food School of Nursing, and Wagner College. She obtained her PhD in neuroscience at the Graduate Center, CUNY in New York. Francois currently lectures and teaches extensive skills employed in the field of biology and neuroscience. Francois is also the founder and president of Icarus Global Science, a program dedicated to providing academic advancements, mentorship, and research opportunities to high school students in the STEM discipline. Dr. Sadim is also the co-founder of a sister company called Pre-Med Pro, a program that offers pre-med high school students training skills in the field of medicine. And I am very pleased to have Dr. Sadim on my Six Weeks of Fitness podcast. Dr. Sadim, how are you? Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Mr. Ferguson. I really appreciate it. Well, call me Vince, please. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Before we get started discussing your research into autism, tell my listeners what inspired you to go into the medical field and become a neuroscientist. So there were several reasons, but the one that actually sticks out was my mentor. At the time when I was trying to pursue a medical career, we were all required to basically do research in labs and because that's part of Uh, the requirement in order to get into medical school. So when I went and I worked with my mentor, he did a lot of uh, work in neuroscience and he had extensive knowledge and just really, really well versed in in the subjects. And as a result, I, I I admired everything that he was doing and the work he was working on. And as a result, I felt that that's where um, I should be. And of course, when I started to um, operate on, on brains, opening them up and seeing all these intricate structures, I knew there was no turning back at that point. Wow, really? Yes. <laughs> and after that point, at that point, you were hooked. Oh, I was hooked after that. Yes, that was it. 
that was it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So how, how did you get involved with autism? So my mentor, that was a field that he was actually working on. So his mentor prior to that worked with him when he was a PhD and a postdoctoral student. So they worked on different areas, fragile X. And so he continued working on autism as well. And when I came into the lab as his student, um, this particular mentor, by the, way, uh, by the way, has a name. His name is Dr. Abdesalam Eladrisi. So when I started working in his, in his laboratory, I found that he was working a lot on autism um, cases. And as a result, I ended up jumping on those topics as well. And I realized I liked them a lot. And that's how I got involved in the research as well. Okay. Well, did you get involved in any particular area of autism? Yes. So the particular area that we actually focus on is called the fragile X. So because autism has a vast spectrum, right, as most people know, they particularly worked on a single area which is on the fragile X. It's called the fragile X syndrome. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the fragile X. No. No? Okay. So, the fra uh, so they worked on the fragile X syndrome. And the thing about the fragile X is that um, because autism is very vast and there's so many, re there's so many areas that, um, that could be contributing to that particular um, disorder of, of autism, one of the things about the fragile X is that you can actually pinpoint exactly where the issue is. And that issue usually is on the X chromosome. So there's an area there that's very fragile and it looks like um, an arm that's basically broken. And that area um, has this gene, which is called the FMR1 gene. That gene is basically silent. And as a result, when this gene is silent, it means that whatever that gene is responsible for, it will not do. So it has, it's going to have, um, that area is going to have issues, of course. So some of the symptoms you see when this gene is silent, that patients have anxiety, hyperactivity, depression, yeah. they have increased sensitivity to epileptic, uh, epileptic type of seizures. And as a result, um, you, you can really pinpoint that, okay, this part is silent or it's missing. This is what we see. So it made it very, um, very easy to pinpoint where the issues are basically happening when you focus on this one particular niche. And that's what we actually did. So we focused on the Fragile X. Sounds very interesting to me <laughs> as a layman. Wow. <laughs> it really does. Now, your research has looked at phthalates or plasticizers and how it can cause neurobehavior abnormalities similar to what is seen in individuals on the autism spectrum. Can you tell my listeners what phthalates are and why are they of concern? Sure, absolutely. Um, right now, phthalates are very... Uh, are, they're actually a huge uh, hot topic, uh, especially in the news. So phthalates are plasticiders, and they're used to basically soften plastics. So an example of a common phthalate that most people are aware of is bisphenol A, which is normally abbreviated as BPA. And this is the plasticizer that's sometimes used in baby bottles. So there's a lot of commercials that state, oh, we're selling BPA-free bottles for babies. So the phthalates we worked with, obviously, is in the same family, and this phthalate was called DBP, and that's dibutophthalate. And this phthalate is an organic solvent, and this phthalate is used basically to mold a lot of plastics. So 
plastic bottles like Poland spring bottles, for example, toys, plastic plates, uh, hospital supplies like catheters and tubing. You know, tend to use a lot of this uh, DBP to basically help to mold it. Now, the concern with these phthalates, basically, like DBP, is that they're not stable, especially when you subject them to high temperatures. So, when you, so what do I mean by high temperatures? Or these, um, these would be like extreme conditions, like if you leave a plastic bottle with water in it outside, for example, or if you heat up food on a plastic plate in the microwave. So what happens is that that DBP becomes destabilized because it's actually in the plastic, so it becomes destabilized. And as a result, it, re it leaches out of the plastic and into the environment. Now, in this case, the environment would be the water that you're consuming or the food that's basically on, that, on, on your plate. So um, the reason why we picked DBP over BPA, bisphenol A, because there were a couple of studies that were done in 2000, and they found that there were high levels of DBP that were found in urine of the general population. So that's what that's why we focused on this particular phthalate. Wow, that sounds um, amazing to me. Because again, you talked about the microwave. Yes. So many of us have used microwave um, ovens to, to heat up our food. Yes, and especially because a lot of food is delivered in in plastic Tupperwares, it's so much easier just to throw that food in, in the microwave immediately, immediately as, as such. And most people feel very lazy taking it out and basically putting it on a glass plate or ceramic plate. So you could see how this could also be a problem. Huh, is it more of a problem for younger people or for adults? Well, that's, that's a very interesting question. So what we did when we basically looked at our studies, we wanted to see, does it affect um, adults, like which generation does it affect more of? So some of the data that we basically got were different because um, when you become an adult, your brain has already been formed. So what we found was that DBP would cause um, individuals to become sterile. Right? So it, it created different types of problems compared to a child or, well, maybe I shouldn't use a child. I should use um, mice because we did the study in mice. So the offspring of mice basically exhibited uh, behavior alterations that were similar to autism when they were exposed to this DBP. So if you basically get exposed to it early on in development and your brain hasn't formed, then there's a possibility that you would have these um, symptoms that may be related closer to autism. And you guys use mice as an example. That's right. So the reason why we use mice is because their bodies are similar. So their anatomy is pretty similar to ours, over around 90% and above. Uh, their brains, the structures inside their organs are similar to ours. So, of course, you won't go ahead and use uh, and do these studies on humans because, I mean, that could be dangerous. So as a result, we did them on mice. So what we did was we took um, pregnant mice and we targeted a particular window and that window was around, I think, uh, gestational day 10 to 20, because that particular window is when the brain of the pups in, in, the, in the womb of the, of the pregnant uh, mouse basically start to connect, uh, their neurons start to connect. And as a result, uh, we wanted to make sure that we, we gave that injection of DBP prior to their neuronal networks being formed so we could see, does this DBP really affect neuronal connections. And when they do get 
exposed to that DBP, what happens later on when they become grown-ups, when we have to run studies on them? How are they going to behave? Um, what's going to happen to some of the key proteins in their brain? So that's what we were actually uh, investigating. So what were your findings? So what we did, of course, as I said, we injected the, the mice and we waited until they were born. And what we did was we looked at their brains at different time points. At postnatal day one means when they were just born on day one, at day seven, and then also at two months of age, just to see where the changes were occurring. And behavior-wise, what we noticed basically was that their brains basically, um, the way the neural behavior was similar to what we see in autism. So we did a couple of tests because it, when you're dealing with mice, you run different types of tests to see how are they behaving, um, how do you see hyperactivity and anxiety and so on and so forth. So what we found was that they had increased locomotive activity, they were extremely hyper, uh, they had anxiety. Uh, when we did a learning and uh, memory test, they had decreased in this test. So in the test, you could teach them a couple of things and later on they wouldn't remember. Um, also, they had a reduction in social interaction, meaning that when you presented, so normally mice are curious, when you give them a new mouse, a stranger mouse, they will play with that mouse because they're trying to figure out who this mouse is. But when they were exposed to DBP early, they weren't really interacting. They would just sit in the corner, they won't socialize. So the symptoms that we were obviously observing were consistent with the fact that they had this altered inhibitory system in their in their brain um, or their what we call the GABAergic system as well was actually um, was actually affected yeah and then what we did also after that because so we noticed the behavior so we wanted to see well the proteins that are responsible for making sure these behaviors are intact what's going on with them so when we looked at them we found that they were significantly downregulated, meaning that they were the expression of them were less or they were basically affected as well that's amazing would you say that genetics play any part when it comes to um, autism in children? Absolutely. Um, I think it's, so it's, two, it's, it's basically both of them, environmental factors and genetics as well. Um, just like the way I've just mentioned, the fragile X. So that, yes. that's the particular area on the X chromosome that's affected. That would be genetics. And then, obviously, um, environmental would be something like dibutophthalate being exposed to the pregnant mother, for example, and then the child getting exposed to this DBP or dibutophthalate. So it's, it's definitely an interplay between, between, both, between both genetics and um, environmental factors. Based on this study, you can say, safely say that humans should also be uh, uh, mindful of what we're putting in the microwave when it comes to heating up our food. Absolutely. Um, I mean, definitely we haven't run these studies in humans, uh, but right. uh, as I said, the anatomy of uh, mice is very, very similar to the anatomy of, of humans. So I would say one should be mindful of not heating up food on plastic plates. Uh, the other point that I would like to bring up while we're in that, because you just brought up a very good point, is that this DBP doesn't only get um, that doesn't only penetrate our bodies orally. It could also go through um, through the skin and inhalation as well. And the reasons why we 
did these studies in low levels because we wanted to see, because most people are not living by factories where you're making huge amounts of plastics. So how are these individuals getting this DBP? So clearly they have to be of low levels. So what we also found is that, um, according to our research, is that DBP is used as uh, a solvent as well, and uh, it basically helps to make makeup, especially for um, young women, right? Because young women are using a lot of makeup in their in their young age-bearing, child-bearing years. So they use makeup, mm -hmm. and as a result, if there's DBP in it, it has a potential to cross the skin, cross the placenta, and then target an unborn baby because the molecule itself is hydrophobic and therefore it can cross very, very easily through all these areas and target, and target um, the baby. So we did some studies just looking to see, well, if um, uh, the pup was, I mean, the mother was exposed to DBP, how much of that does the mother get in her brain versus how much the child gets or the pup gets? And what we found was that the mother does get um, a significant amount in her brain, but definitely that DBP did cross the placenta and it did go to the brain itself as well. So that was proof that it actually does reach the brain of, of these uh, pups, the, the mice. Wow. So how, do, how would someone know that there's DBP in, their, in the product that they're using? Is, this, uh, is it in the ingredients? It should be listed. Um, right now, I believe by law they should be listing whether products have DBP in there or not. That's why the baby bottles will say BPA free. But most of the time, um, like when I buy my nail polish, for example, I always look for nail polish that says DBP free so that it doesn't have it in there. Um, the only thing is that I, I don't know what the rules and regulations are here in the United States because I know that they're very slow in, in implementing some of these policies to stop uh, DBP from being used as, um, as a solvent. I know in Europe, a lot of them have started to ban DBP as part of um, a solvent you know, in, in terms of softening these plastics. But I think uh, the U.S. hasn't quite gotten there yet, but you know, hopefully eventually they will get there where they can ban this DBP from being used and try and use alternatives that they can, you know, just like what they're doing with the BPA to see how they can soften plastic in a very different way. Most definitely. This is very important. You know, I can stay on this topic for a little longer, but we don't have that much time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> sure. But also, I understand you were awarded the Marshall Plan Scholarship to conduct research in Austria at one of the hospitals in a town called Graz. Can you tell my listeners about that experience doing research abroad and, and also outside of the United States? Yes, uh, that was a phenomenal experience um, because you do all your research here in the United States and you're always curious and you're always wondering, well, how are things done elsewhere, abroad? Is it the same? Do they follow the same paradigms? Um, you know, do you... Uh, you know, because obviously the way that we get to graduate school and the way we apply with our GREs and uh, it, the process is a little bit different than it is in Europe. So I was really curious to see how this is actually done abroad. So I, I did go to Austria first in 2011 uh, to conduct research. And at that time, I was working with a team uh, that were collaborating with seven EU countries on a project called Bioplanes. So they were looking at how food would affect the kidneys 
and I was part of that team. And then a year later, I basically secured a scholarship to return back to Austria and work with another team, an amazing team in that same hospital in Graz uh, called El Cajar. And what yeah. they were working on was um, the brain. They were looking at the brain-kidney axis and seeing how uh, contrast media, this is the media that's used when you're doing uh, scans, like if you want to scan the kidney, for example, you would use uh, contrast. So they were looking to see whether that would that's safe for the kidneys um, and was the kidney is the kidney basically excreting that that contrast uh, without um, without being harmed and and I learned a lot uh, because I moved uh, it opened me up to other areas instead of just focusing on the brain but looking at how the brain can work with other areas as well uh, and other organs in the periphery. So um, yeah, and, and as a result, I was really impressed with that that time when I was over there that I decided I could stay on, I could, well, come back here and encourage other students in the university to also try and apply for that scholarship so they could have the same experience and opportunity that I had. Wow. And we're going to talk about that a little later on. But how long did you stay in Austria? I was out there. So I spent my summers there. So the first uh, 2011, I spent about three, three to three, three and a half months. And then the following year, I also spent about that time as well because I was still working on my research work back in the States, so I couldn't stay out there longer than that. Very nice. Good experience, though, I would say, right? Phenomenal. Yes, uh -huh. really, really phenomenal experience. <laughs> now, some of your other lab work has looked at the amino acid taurine and how that can reduce plasma glucose levels. Can this be a potential aid for those with diabetes? So that uh, taurine is a great amino acid, and some people probably heard of it being added to Red Bull, yes. right? And uh, <laughs> people drink, yeah. So people drink, uh, people drink Red Bull, but most of the time they don't normally explain what the taurine actually does. But uh, the thing with taurine is that it's a sulfur-containing amino acid, and it's one of the most abundant uh, free amino acids in many of our excitable tissues. In, in our brain, skeletal um, muscles, and cardiac muscles. And one of the things about taurine, it's actually been reported to prevent age-dependent decline of cognitive function. So as a result, it's been shown and proven that when there's reduced taurine, and they've looked at that in mice that have a knockout for uh, one of the uh, steps that makes taurine, right? But, you know, cause, because I'm trying to keep this very much in layman terms, I'm not used or these uh, fancy words. Please, please, <laughs> so, please. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. So um, when, uh, when there's a re reduction in taurine in mice, they've been reported to show severe um, functional histopathology in like, the visual system, skeletal system, the heart, the pancreas, and the brain. And, uh, but if you increase supplementation, they've shown increased benefits acting through the same organs as well. So what we wanted to do was we wanted to look and see whether um, there was a difference, you know, what would happen if we gave our mice uh, taurine. So we had two, two groups of mice, ones that weren't fed taurine chronically for two months, and then the others that were. And um, uh, so we wanted, to see, we wanted to see whether they would basically deal with, um, how would they deal with glucose or, or diabetes? So... Um, what we did was that we injected both groups of mice, ones that had taurine, the other ones that didn't have taurine, 
with uh, a glucose uh, shot. It's called a glucose tolerance test. And basically, we wanted to see what the results would be. So what we found basically was that the mice that were not fed with taurine were not able to handle the glucose very well. So they started to have huge spikes in their plasma glucose levels about 30 minutes into the test, whereas the mice that were fed with taurine, they gradually increased, but not to the level that the, the mice that were not fed with taurine um, got to. And they remained closer to, uh, they were hypoglycemic, closer to baseline levels through the entire two hours of the test that we conducted. Uh, so th these were great findings that, yeah. that we found. And um, so I'm hoping that uh, at some point this would be um, work that, you know, you, we could look at in, in humans and see whether, um, you know, we could get the same findings as well. Because, again, most of our findings are being conducted in mice. Hmm. Yes. Yes. But, but based on these findings, though, would you advise individuals to take uh, terrain? So, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so there was an individual that I knew that used to take taurine and consume it. Uh, he would state that, you know, you could use me as an example when you present your lab work uh, because I'm <laughs> yeah. living proof that taurine actually works. I'm a walking specimen. Um, he used to have tremors, and uh, he mentioned to me that when he took taurine, basically these tremors were, were reduced. Now, I think that's amazing. Um, however, I can't give that type of medical advice, nor am I allowed to, because we do our studies in mice, and most of the most of these studies that we do um, in the lab, of course, you know, like like in any laboratory, there's a series of steps that one has to take. You do studies in mice before you move on to humans, and you have a board that basically approves these different steps. But um, I'm hoping that if you know, depending on how far this research goes. Yeah. that maybe one day we'll try out uh, uh, human trials. Um, and that's something that I'd have to speak with my still current mentor because I still work with him, uh, Dr. Ledrisi. But um, the exciting thing is that uh, we're part of a touring society. It's called the Touring Society. And this is the, it, we're part of a team that every two years we meet up to look and see what the benefits are of touring in research. And we share our data. So we go to different countries around the world every two years, and we we share our data. So hopefully, um, hopefully, yes, that this this one day would would take place where we actually do some human trials. Yeah, because uh, I I know that taurine is also available in certain foods, right? Yes. Yeah, so, so they uh, some foods will actually add add taurine uh, into their their food as. Uh, you know, because they believe that when you give it, it has um, it has benefits. But what we also found with taurine is that um, when you give it in a short for a short period of time, we see the benefits. But what tends to happen if you give it chronically for too long, then the reverse happens. So the mechanism changes. So that's why it's important to investigate this further because chronically the mechanism is different from when you give it acutely for a short period of time. And that's why I wouldn't be comfortable to recommend and tell anyone right now, uh, because because of the studies that that we're running, that um, this is exactly what one should be doing as a human. And I'm not licensed to do that anyway. Right. Right. Okay. So I won't mention that right. you. I won't mention that you recommend this uh, for everybody. You know. <laughs> so my listeners don't go out there and run out there and get a run on the taurine market. You know. <laughs> <laughs> we, we'll stay. We'll stay away from that. 
meantime, until we we uh, ironed out all the kinks, if if any. <laughs> yeah, but let me know, okay? Please, I want to know. Absolutely, know. <laughs> absolutely. Now, sure. you are also the founder and president of Icarus Global Science and the co-founder of PreMed Pro. Are these charitable organizations? Well, I could call them charitable because I. <laughs> I don't, it's not a non-profit because I haven't been getting funds for it. So this is something that I started because I, um, I, saw, I saw the need for programs like this because at the college level, you know, I was part of a minority program. Well, it was a program that was substantially increasing the number of um, underrepresented individuals in the STEM discipline. And this program was called the LSM program. And this was founded by the, uh, the Lewis Stokes. So it was called the Lewis Stokes Alliance for Minority Participation. And what that program did for me was wonders because it basically um, helped. It paid for my master's at the time when I was taking my master's. And it made uh, pretty much all of us who were in, in that program uh, do extensive research, go and publish, and not focus on working but focus on our education. And as a result, I realized uh, in the importance of programs like this. So I wanted to start something uh, at a high school level because I felt it's always good to grab the students while their minds are still young and we can still mold them. And I figured that's the perfect time. And um, I like to work with underrepresented students because sometimes we don't have the mentorships that other uh, groups may, may uh, be lucky to have. And so... I've used my previous experience and said, well, it's important to set up something like this. So Icarus focuses on, on exposing students to research at the college level uh, because it's much more, um, it, it's, how can I put it, it's definitely um, of, a, of a higher level than you would do at the high school level because some of the techniques that we use or what we teach the students are very different. And as a result, it makes them extremely competitive when they apply to, uh, to, to schools out there, like colleges or even prestigious colleges. Now, I didn't only want to stay within uh, only doing the research components, so I also wanted to help medical students. So that's how Pre-Med Pro came about as well. And I was working with my colleague, uh, Dr. Christine Bishara, and she, um, we, we decided that that would be something great where we could bring in research and uh, medical type of um, guidance to young students who may be interested. Bottom line is that when you expose students early on to touching a microscope or teaching them how to use a stethoscope or um, using a blood pressure cuff or machine, students get to feel what it's like to be in these particular fields. And then they don't think that they're so far off. And also when they see individuals like yourself you know, maybe you, know, you see a minority, a female wearing a lab coat, it doesn't look foreign and they could say, this is something I would like to be. And I know it's possible because if she could do it, so can I. Wow. Love it. Love it. Love it. <laughs> really, role, role models are so important. Mentors, mentorships are so important. And that's what you're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. It happened to me. I've had great mentors. Um, the process itself is very vigorous to get into, and that guidance is key because those mentors have walked that journey. They know what it takes. They know when these deadlines are. So it's important that you also teach the younger generation that's coming about that these are the deadlines. This is how you have to be vigorous. You have to start off 
in college with a 4.0 GPA and try and keep it at a 4.0 so you don't ruin your chances of trying to get into medical school, for example. Wow. Yes. Oof. Now, do students working with Icarus get the opportunity to conduct to conduct a research abroad? Yes. So um, one of the things that we started with uh, some of my mentors, so there's one mentor I haven't mentioned who was part of the LSM program, Dr. Claude Brathwaite, who played a huge role as well in my journey in becoming a neuroscientist. So he started the Global CUNY uh, project that allowed uh, college students to basically go abroad and do research. And uh, what we decided was uh, we could expand that and start, uh, and start doing it in different, in, in different parts of, of the world, of course. So I thought that this would be great for Icarus as well if the high school students are able to do that, where they can go abroad as well and do research. So some of the countries, like my, my mentors from Dr. Abdesson Madrisi from Morocco, so we usually send students to Morocco to do research out wow. there, and we allow them to also experience the culture by going to cities like Casablanca, Fez, Kalnut, uh, for example. So, um, so as a result, this is um, how I decided that high school students also should be given that opportunity to go abroad and start doing the research. Because if they're doing it here in the States, then it, there's no difference if they can do it abroad as well. Wow, that is so amazing. That is so powerful. I, I really appreciate you. <laughs> yes, you. what you're doing is awesome. <laughs> but you know, and I, and I actually have more questions, but I'm not going to ask them because I'll be on here for hours with you, Dr. Sadeem. <laughs> <laughs> No <laughs> but but where can my listeners find out more about you and your work? So, uh, I have a website, www.ecarus, that's spelled E-K-A-R-U-S dot com. So if you go there, you'll be able to see information about Ecarus and also uh, the Pre-Med Pro as well. If you go to www.premedpro.com, that also will lead you to the uh, medical part of you know, for the high school students. I'm also on Instagram as well, and the Instagram ha uh, handle is at Icarus Global Science. So again, spelt Icarus the same way, Global Science, all one word. So we're on Instagram as well, and when they go on, they'll be able to see young high school students like themselves, minorities as well, conducting research in a lab, presenting their research, doing uh, dissections, uh, you know, so that they can get a feel and also speaking as well because they teach other students what they're doing in the lab as well so that they can get insight on what's actually happening at Eucharist. Wow, very nice, very nice. Dr. Francois Sadim, on behalf of Body Scope of New York and Six Weeks of Fitness, I truly want to thank you for coming on my show today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate The honor is really mine. I really Thank you. Uh, and to my listeners, I truly hope this program was informative, encouraging, and inspiring, and that you will continue tuning in to our Six Weeks of Fitness podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please leave them on my Six Weeks of Fitness blog at www.sixweeksoffitness.com or email me at vince at sixweeks.com. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>